So there's a, a pizza restaurant that opened recently in New York, Greg, and I, you, I'm sure are very aware of this because you run Eater New York and cool pizza restaurants are like basically what you make your living on. It's called Emmy Squared and it is the offshoot of a pizza restaurant called Emily. Like Emmy is a nickname for Emily and they serve square pizza. So that explains both of the I, words in the name. I just got that actually. I just got that pun. I, I can't tell if you're joking. No, seriously. Wait, I just really? thought it was M- Emmy Squared because it was like the sequel. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with Amanda Cohen. Amanda, wait, Amanda Cohen? Amanda Cohen is the chef of Dirt Candy, a restaurant in New York's Lower East Side, and also the author of the Dirt Candy Cookbook, which is super cool for reasons we will go into later. Uh, she, uh, she calls it like she sees it. She's really cool to talk to. We're going to fuck some shit up with Amanda Cohen. And the point is, this pizza is the best pizza ever. It's so good. And if you go to the restaurant, it is perpetually mobbed and you have to like wait forever or they're sold out of the pie that you want. You have to like commit to the social endeavor of getting the pie of the moment. Or there's an Emmy squared hack. Make a pizza, make a Detroit style pizza in your house using a convection oven. Get the pizza delivered. Oh. So the thing that's weird though is like Emmy squared does not itself deliver. They are partnered with one of the many delivery services that we have here in New York that are in other cities throughout the country. Okay. Well, see, this is interesting, actually. I was a not delivery person forever for a few reasons, and one of them was that I actually like going into restaurants. I like to go to the physical space. Like That's so weird considering your job. Uh, what? I'm, uh, I'm being sarcastic. Oh, oh. Huh. <laughs> we are not reading each other's no, facial we're not, we're expressions all the time. No, no. Well, <laughs> Greg, as the, as, the, as the editor of a restaurant-oriented website, I am surprised that you enjoy going to restaurants. Well, this might, this might seem shocking to you, but no, no, seriously. Like, um, I had not used seamless, which is the predominant, you know, delivery platform and yeah. where we live. I had not used it until like, I think actually like four months ago. Um, I like the experience like, cause you know, I can eat whatever I can microwave something and eat it on my couch, but you know, at least going to pick it up, you get a, a little bit of an experience of going to the restaurant. Now I know that's a really unpopular opinion and I'm not trying to seem yeah, like I mean, I'm some sort of saint or anything. The whole but, point of delivery is that you never have to interact with any humans. Like, right. But I like that, you know, anyway, but, um, but it, with Emmy, it's, it's when Emmy squared opened, it was considered such a badge of honor in the way that it is whenever a cool restaurant opens to have eaten there and to like, you know, get that Instagram up, right? Like to, to weigh in on whatever forum of your choosing it is and to say like, I've eaten the pizza, the pizza is spectacular. I have participated in the zeitgeist in this active way. But now that you can order it for delivery, like I've, I will like Instagram it on my, you know, kitchen counter instead of Instagramming it in the restaurant. But I can't help but feel like I'm not playing the same game that I had been playing before. Right. And it's, it's weird. I don't know. It's weird. Does it almost feel like you're cheating? It does. It feels exactly like I'm cheating. Does the pizza taste any different? Do you like it any more or less? I think it's better when it's delivered because I like pizza once it has sort of sopped together and is like a little bit mushier and a little bit closer to room temperature, like in the way that things like can sometimes become way better when they get worse. But, you know, and it, it, it makes sense with pizza because I think pizza occupies this like cultural territory where like it is a food that most people think of as delivery food. And then in the last 10 years, we've had to kind of resell ourselves as diners on like it being a thing you eat in a restaurant, right? Like pizza went from being home food and cheap food to being restaurant food. And now I'm like selling myself on the other direction. I'm like, it's okay 
to get pizza delivered. That's really interesting. I never thought about that, though, that pizza did become a restaurant thing again, especially with these sort of Neapolitan places where it's like, why would you get it delivered? It's going to suck unless you eat it right out of the oven that has the wood in it. And somebody was, you know, futzing around with this dough that you would never understand how to make unless you went to Naples and, you know, worshipped at the altar of some sainted pizza guy. Starita. That's the place in Naples. Oh, yeah. So, like, you can't get that delivered, you fool. Yeah. But then now you can again. Right. Like, so but, never mind. But like, it's, it's weird. I mean, it, it makes you realize how much for certain types of food, the context really is absolutely everything. Being there. Being there and the plate. I mean, you know, you think about like these beautifully plated dishes. If you go to certain kinds of restaurants and it'll be like, you know, like the fanned out breast of duck and like three exquisite asparagus spears and like a little swoop of some yellow sauce. And it shows up and you're like, this is beautiful. This is all I want for my entree. It's perfect. The context is fantastic. When you take all of that, like when you take like the raw material of that like plate of duck and you plop it into a takeout box, you're like, man, this is like three ounces of flabby duck and three fucking asparagus and like a little twiddle of sauce. Like intentionally choosing to get rid of the plateware and get rid of the service and get rid of the room and the ambiance and the atmosphere and like the entire, forgive me, dear sweet Lord, for saying the word that I'm about to say, the entire curated experience of walking in the door of a restaurant. The C word. We have a, we need like a bell that we ring that like, (laughs) (laughs) but like you, you get rid of that. You pay just as much because like, you know, they're not going to say like, well, you know, you're not covering any of our overhead. So we're only going to charge you the food costs. Like you pay like however much it would have been for that stupid freaking duck, but you get none of it. And in fact, the duck itself is less good because it's gone through the door. I mean, like just not everything needs to leave the restaurant, I guess. Like has delivery gone too far? So today we are joined in the Eater Upsell Studios by Amanda Cohen, who you may uh, know from her restaurant in Manhattan, but also as somebody who's written uh, a lot about things related to restaurants and running them. And and um... Amanda's basically one of the most honest and outspoken and smartest voices in terms of restaurateurs and chefs telling it like it is about like... Here's the bullshit involved in running your own restaurant. And that's awesome and rare. And I think whenever it happens, people lose their minds with happiness to have someone <laughs> who's honest. Welcome so to welcome, the So welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that lovely introduction. So how old is Dirt Candy now in both of its iterations? I thought you were going to ask me how old I am now. How old are you? No, you don't have to tell us that. I'm 42, actually. Um, that's uh, the, the meaning of life number. Douglas Adams said 42 is the answer to the question. Or it it is the answer to the question and then whatever, the whole phenomenon. It's like the thing you're supposed to answer if you don't know an answer, I thought. Yeah, 42. 42. Well, I don't know anything, so there you go. Um, Little Dirt Candy opened in 2008 and we closed it sometime in 2014, actually. So it was open for a good seven years or so, uh, six and a half, seven years. And then the new one has been open for a year and a half. And so Dirt Candy, first of all, has one of the best restaurant names of all time. Thank you. I remember when Dirt Candy first opened, a lot of the coverage was just about how cool the name was. 
or how bad the name was. On the flip side, we got a lot of that is the worst name for a restaurant ever. I don't think that's true. Well, I didn't think it was true. I mean, it's demonstrably not the case. <laughs> like in, in a world where we have like Baguette About It, my favorite restaurant name <laughs> in Brooklyn, which is a, a French Italian bakery. Like dark candy is pretty solid. I think it's pretty good. You know, we wanted to choose something that was Googleable, really, and people would remember. And, you know, when you put in a name like Spoon or Fork, right. like that's impossible. Le Restaurant. Yeah, exactly. So... And we really, you know, we chose this so people would remember it. But it does. I mean, still, for the first couple of years in every uh, review, it was, "Mm, that's a bad name. Uh, Not quite sure about that name. Bad name. We won awards for having the worst name. I mean, I guess all publicity is good publicity. It was great. People remembered it. Why do I care? It is super (laughs) memorable. I mean, I think like, you know, when you, when you, when you, Google restaurants, it's, um, I I noticed this a couple of years ago that like every city has its own two to four letter suffix that all of the restaurants put onto their names in order to get a URL. So like in New York, it'll be like Spoon NYC. And in Chicago, it'll be like Spoon CHI. And it's like, sometimes it's the airport code. Like in Portland, it's always PDX. But like Dirt Candy, you can just be, you're you're Dirt Candy on Twitter, right? I'm Dirt Candy on Twitter, but uh, our URL is Dirt Candy NYC because somebody had already taken it. I mean, I know. That is so weird. Do you Uh, know know who it is? No, actually, there are a couple other people who have dirt candy in their name. Uh, one's this sort of horror porn photography in Brooklyn. Um, H-O-R-R-O-R? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. There's always these pictures with a lot of breasts and then blood. Um, and then another one's like a motocross racing from out west. I, I don't know. Um, those are the two other people. When I had put in, because when I went to go buy the URL, um, and, you know, I wrote in Dirt Can and they're like, it's taken. Uh, and here's some other suggestions. And I really wish I had bought the suggestions then. One was, um, what was it? Uh, nasty Bonbons. Oh. <laughs> which I thought was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nasty Bonbons. But That's people a- would confuse you for, well, m- possibly many things, but I would assume a sweets <laughs> restaurant, a bakery. Yeah, dirty, dirty. Dirty candy yeah, is very dirty. different than dirt. Nasty bonbons is strong, man. It's good, You right? should spin off into that. Like, That's what I'm thinking. That's my retirement It's plan. like somebody's punk name or something. <laughs> or like roller derby. Some, that's really good. I'm, I just looked up dirtcandy.com on my phone while we were sitting here, yeah. and it has nothing there. So somebody owns it. Somebody is squatting on your restaurant's website. So Assholes. how many... <laughs> I've never thought about this or never asked anybody this that works in the restaurant industry, but like how many times a week let's say do you just like google the name of your restaurant like once every three minutes or so really no um um maybe once every day or so once every couple of days just to see what's happening what's out there what new people any like actual like something fascinating that's happened with it my mom has a google alert on me and she likes to tell me (laughs) what's gone on sometimes like things i already know about like you know if somebody good mom thing right She's like, oh, did you know this was happening? I'm like, yeah, I did the interview. (laughs) But thanks. (laughs) I love that. No. So Dirt Candy is a vegetarian restaurant that um, I think, you know, right now we're living in this golden age of, I don't even want to say vegetarianism because I feel like part of the golden age is that the word vegetarian isn't the word anymore. But it's like this golden age of vegetable oriented, meat minimal cooking and eating, let's say. Um, and so much of what you have been doing at Dirt Candy since you first opened sort of presaged where we are now. Like you were, I think, among the very first chefs, at least in New York, to really just be like, 
go, there, there is all we need inside this vegetable flavor-wise. Right. So how does it feel to sort of look around and see your philosophies everywhere? It's a little creepy. Um, it, I, we don't feel quite as unique anymore. So that's a, that's a little hard. Uh, there are other people who are doing what we're doing, although doing it differently. Um, and I still think we are the only one that's really dedicated to vegetables. There's a lot of places that are, you know, they call them vegetable forward or vegetable focus, but they're either, um, I still think of them as doing some sort of elaborate sides or they're still meat on the menu. We really are the only one who's like, we put it all on the line for carrots. Like we got this. Um, and it's very flattering because I feel like it means that people sort of looked at what we were doing and they're like, oh, you know, there is a market for this. She is able to succeed. We also can do it. So that feels really good. I will say that I think this is still a really, really small phenomenon. Um, I mean, if you look at the statistics about how people are eating and what uh, restaurants are serving in other parts of the country outside of New York and maybe a couple of other like hub cities, uh, it is not vegetable focused. It's still really meat focused. So we're in sort of this elite little circle here. I guess these things tend to <laughs> take a while to spread, right? A while. Like bacon is still king. Like it's still like this like cutting edge, like you wear a bacon t-shirt and you have a bacon <laughs> bumper sticker in, in certain parts of the world. And I think in New York, it's like so out that it's almost ironically in again. Right. And so, you know, we'll give it eight or 10 years and super vegetable oriented <laughs> things will be everywhere. Well, what I've always admired about Dirt Candy, the restaurant, especially, you know, the way that it looks, the way that all the branding is, the way that the menu is written, the way that everything presents is that it's really fun and energetic. Do you still do the thing on your menu where like, the, I remember in the very beginning, like the names of the dishes were just a vegetable and an yeah. exclamation point. It was like carrots. They don't have exclamation points anymore, which is sad. Um, but the menu feels more exciting. So it's fine because we have all the, the statistics at the back. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. I want restaurants to be fun. They all take themselves so seriously. I was going to say, I feel like, you know, the, the vegetable, the notion of a vegetable vegetable forward or vegetable centric restaurant is very popular, especially in New York right now. But a lot of times it's like, look at this kohlrabi beet, this <laughs> soulful beet that's been dredged from the ground. And it's been sitting near a flame in this beautiful industrial space for two hours. And then somebody in a fancy apron pulled it out. But like Dirk Handy, it's, it's this fun place. It you is know? this fun place. I mean, again, I just, it's just food. It's just dinner. We We're just going to come. We don't eat, need drink. to like worship the kohlrabi. We don't. We don't need to worship anything. <laughs> it's just, you know, it goes in and it comes out and you eat again. Um, the To me, it's much more important that the experience is actually fun and that's what makes it memorable. And I think, you know, for most people, that's why they go back. They're like, oh, I had this amazing time at this restaurant. The service was great. Uh, the staff was great. The whole ambiance was great. And the food was great. Uh, that's what makes a really successful dinner, not necessarily in the other order. You know, you want to re keep recapturing those amazing moments. Do you think of Dirt Candy as a healthy restaurant? No, I don't. I don't think of it as an unhealthy restaurant. Uh, I also don't think it's necessarily my job to put that label on any kind of cuisine. I'm not your doctor. My restaurant is not your medicine cabinet. <laughs> Um, and I don't think, I certainly don't have a degree in that. So it upsets me when people think that we should know these things. Um, it's not, it's just food. We fry it. We use butter. We don't use butter. We use olive oil. We use all kinds of fat. Um, I think it tends to be a little bit healthier because it is just vegetables, but you know, that's just the happenstance. Since 2008, when you launched, have you noticed that diners are gravitating towards m one or, you know, a few ingredients specifically more than they used to? Like, are people like, oh, hold up, kale, I'm on it? 
No, not so much anymore. I actually think they've people's ideas of vegetables and food have expanded a lot more. And when we first opened, we had so many phone calls about, is this organic? Is it local? Is it farm to table? Is it GMO? And we were all like, ah, go away. <laughs> um, uh, and we rarely get those calls any day. Now I think people are just like, yeah, I'll try whatever. Good for them. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there has been this shift, I think, especially restaurants like yours that have a really specific point of view where um, people are really excited to be given I I was about to say a vision and then I realized that was like way too serious, but like a point of view, right? Like they, I think they want something curated. And so we're able to give them this very curated experience. And I think people do like sometimes being able to just come in and not have to choose. I mean, we do give them a menu, but it's, um, you know, it's like, well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to choose like chicken tonight or beef. We're giving them this ridiculous choice. Like, do I want tomato or do I want kohlrabi? Like it, it, it really sort of changes their focus of the meal. Do you f- have a sense of what proportion of your guests are vegetarians? I would say about maybe 40% of our guests are vegetarians. And within that, maybe 10%, 5% are vegan. And then the rest are just omnivores who are, you know, curious about what we do. Adventurous carnivores. Yeah, exactly. So how, how have things changed? So so Little Dirt Candy, which you I love that you call it Little Dirt Candy, <laughs> which was the first space that the restaurant was in, was in fact extraordinarily tiny, like itty bitty, itty bitty. Itty bitty. Like nine seats or something? 18 it, seats, about 350 square feet. Which, you know, for reference is like the size of a, a bathroom in a <laughs> suburban home. Um, and now your new space is five or six times the size. It's about 2,000 square feet and we have 50 seats. So how has your life changed now that you're cooking for that many more people in a way bigger space and everything just got bigger? Everything got bigger. My staffing got bigger. My space got bigger. My problems got bigger. Just all, you know, multiplied. Perfect exponential scaling. Yeah, exactly. Did you know that was what you were getting into? Uh, we knew that it was everything was going to get bigger and a little harder. We, I don't think I knew how much harder it was going to be. Um, and it, it, a couple of things happened in between. I, we were running this very specific restaurant, and I do think sort of the restaurant industry has changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, how so? Well, most people don't want appetizers and entrees anymore. And like I have this very specific idea of how I think a meal should go. You go, you have a cocktail, then you order a bottle of wine, then you have like your appetizers, and then you have your entrees, and then you have your dessert, and then you have a dessert wine and coffee. Obviously, not everybody works that way, but um, and now really I can't get people not to share, which is why we switched over our menu from an appetizer entree format to a more of a shared style of food. Uh, and that was a huge, huge surprise. And, and I don't think I saw that happening because I was in such a tiny little, like, isolated world at Dirt Candy. It's so interesting that you don't love share plates. I feel like a lot of chefs and owner operators love share plates share plates because it, it raises the check average. It means, like, you know, you'll get three entrees for <laughs> two people instead of two. But that doesn't work that way. I think, um, and maybe it does at other restaurants. For us, uh, we find that... We, we're not getting people to necessarily order more, but they're not, you know, asking that things be split into two. I like eating. I like sharing my food with somebody else, but I like very composed plates. And I, and I feel like uh, small plates can make people really lazy. You don't have to work as hard on all the little components. They're smaller. Making an entree is really hard. And that's a challenge and it's exciting and people are losing that skill. Um, 
for us at Little Dirt Candy, you know, we'll always say and 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 genuinely mean we think you should get two to three plates per person because they're small. <laughs> they'll order like three between two people, and we're like, all right, you got me. So, what goes into the art of making an entree? Um. Well, you have to captivate somebody interest, let's say. If an appetizer is about 8 to 10 bites, an entree is 20 to 22 bites, right? And so to keep that person's interest up that high, and uh, it's hard. And so you have to, I think, you have to add so many more flavors, and it has to be more delicate, and it has to be more balanced. You can get away with a lot in a small plate. You're just like, yeah, this is a tiny little spicy plate, or this is a big hit of acid in this plate, or this is really salty. Whereas in a big dish, it has to be so much more balanced. Where do you learn how to balance like that? I mean, is this something... You learn it in entree school? or <laughs> Entree school, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's, it's just a four-year program. Trial and error, or you have a sense of art, or where... where the, I love the... I mean, I don't love the idea, but I'm intrigued by this idea that this is an art that's being lost. Well, very, I mean, look at the restaurants that are opening nowadays, right? Where do you find entrees? You still see them, but not as much. The sort of the ratio of uh, shared plate restaurants to appetizer entree restaurants is changing. It's super weird. I, I dine out by myself a lot and I love eating alone, but it is really difficult at a share platey restaurant to be by yourself because can't you can kind of cobble together like right. the traditional like appetizer entree maybe a side dish and dessert thing works really well when you're alone because everything is proportioned to one person eating exactly. it yeah. but I'll like sit at the bar of a restaurant and look at this menu and <laughs> it's also sort of screwed up by the fact that I'm a food writer so I order like a maniac but I'll be like I would like eight dishes for one person and it's like it's difficult it is and and, and they're looking at you like okay like, are you <laughs> also well you know there's this move towards small plates I find that a lot of restaurants that serve meat usually some of them are like going just full steakhouse yeah. where it's just this piece of something on a plate you yeah. know the tom colicchio model yeah which i guess is really like the steakhouse but the like steakhouse. here is your like hunk of cow and you can pay an additional 14 dollars if you would like some leaves it's, on it it's a bummer okay. though i am um, i mean it's not a bummer things evolved to meet the tastes of people and you know we're allowed to dislike things on the show right <laughs> well I, I mean i understand why some people like that but like i'm i'm very much more like that style of dining that you describe where you sit down and you have an appetizer and then you know you have a cocktail and then the that kind of old school, you know, thing. I don't know if people care about it as much anymore. That experience, so much as what's on the plate, like the food. They don't, I'm here for I, the food. I think one of the problems too is, and it's not a problem, um, but people are dining out a lot more than they used to. So you know, this is a meal that you would have maybe once a week. You know, it'd be like your Friday night treat, and and now. I can't, I feel like most of my customers have already probably gone out to eat the night before and are going out the next night. And so they don't want to have, um, even between the two of them, seven plates or eight plates, they want to have two, you know, and they're going to go out for lunch the next day and dinner. And they go from like one restaurant to another restaurant and they don't want those big portions. They don't want to order a lot of food. They just want to sample and be like, Oh, I went to dirt candy. It's very exciting. Checked it off my list. Yeah, exactly. I took a photo of it. <laughs> Do you think about that at all? Do you think about like that, you know, your food's going to be snapped and put on Instagram? And I think about it in terms of my cooks, making sure that the food goes out how we want it to look. Because I'm always like, oh, guys, come on. Somebody's going to take a picture of that. It sucks. Um, but I don't care what it looks like in the dining room when somebody taking a picture of it. And then when people are sometimes are like, light's so low here. I'm like, yeah, it's weird, though, because 
um, A, not my problem, <laughs> but B, uh, other people manage to have perfectly fine photos. I don't know how they do it. You just got to increase the brightness and Snapseed. <laughs> you know, well, one of our critics uh, actually has a separate iPhone or he'll like borrow your iPhone. And then flash and, and somebody then put holds. A, he, he wraps a uh, napkin around it so it diffuses the light. Let's see. There you go. That's so brilliant. That's how the pros do it. <laughs> no, it's genius. It's like diffuse lighting. But like, I think the photography thing is, is I mean, I'm, I'm a total perpetrator of this all the time. Like I take thousands of pictures of my food all the time and post it Instagram like a maniac. But, um, but I do think that there has been this shift where like, you know, like you were saying about they come to your restaurant to say they've been to Dirt right. Candy. I think like there's a certain kind of performance to ordering certain dishes like oh I'm gonna get this I know it's gonna look good I'm gonna take an Instagram of it and the act of like performing my possession of this dish is gonna be more important to me than actually eating the dish a hundred percent it's super weird this is my theory about why um watermelon radishes are so popular right now as an ingredient is because they're very beautiful and they introduce like a sort of purpley pink color which is not usually part of the composition of a plate and so it pops when you take a top-down Instagram but do you think chefs know that? Yes, I think they're doing that totally on purpose. <laughs> We've always used watermelon radishes for the past seven years, so I did not know that. Or I didn't <laughs> think about it that way. But they are a lovely addition to most plates. They're beautiful. They are. They're awesome. And they taste good. Enough. And they're okay. They're not yeah. my favorite radish. Do you have a favorite radish? Hard-hitting interview question. <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> Probably, like, just a regular red radish. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. You know? Just why, I mean, why make it any more complicated than that? Well, yeah. They're the juiciest. Is there are, any... Sorry. Oh, that was you. I was going to say, is there anything that you really love, like to eat and cook that you just know you can't put on the menu because nobody, you know, people just don't dig it as much? Um, no. I mean, I, I think it's funny because after a while in cooking in restaurants for so long, I, I, I don't know how to cook for myself. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Like, I, I never make my own food. So, I mean, if I'm at home, I'm probably eating takeout or popcorn. Um, uh, so I can't imagine, and like my thoughts about food are all about the menu. So how has the menu evolved besides losing its exclamation points? I feel like over the, I guess now eight total years yeah. that Dirt Candy has been around, it's changed pretty significantly. It has, I think, uh, well, we're better. So that's one thing, you know, hopefully we've gotten better over the last eight years. Uh, we're much more vegetable focused than we meant to be when we started out. Uh, when I opened Little Dirt Candy, yeah, I just thought I was opening a restaurant that happened not to have meat. We weren't calling ourselves anything and we weren't we definitely weren't vegetarian, but it was just whatever. And uh, over the first couple of years, we really sort of progressed to being more vegetable focused. Uh, and that sort of became our narrative. The now I think we have a lot less to prove. So our dishes are actually less fussy. They have less ingredients in them. Uh they're much more put together and they are more balanced. I'm not trying to, I think you have this moment sometimes when you're like, I got to get everything into this dish because it's my last dish ever. And, you know, I kind of don't think I'm closing tomorrow, so I don't <laughs> have to do that for every dish anymore. And we know we can have, you know, you always want every dish to be a home run, um, but I don't really feel that way anymore. Um, I mean, I want them all to be really good, but it doesn't have to be the most Instagrammable dish or the most talked about dish it just has to be good food every song doesn't have to be bohemian rhapsody exactly know? so so besides being a cook and a restaurant owner you also do a fair amount of writing i do sometimes sometimes for you 
released uh, a cookbook that is totally unique and everyone went crazy for it's because the it was <laughs> it's a comic cookbook. a comic book comic book, book cookbook and you also have been like regular columnists for food publications and I don't know so so like what what else is going on in your head besides restaurant stuff or what else about restaurant stuff is going on <laughs> in your head um well I've kind of taken a step back from a lot of stuff uh, one of the things that we found was so much of the story of dirt candy became the story of my views on something um, and I'm not sure that's actually helpful to it. Um, and as much as, you know, I like talking about things and, and I do have a lot of opinions about a lot of things, <laughs> uh, the, we, I feel like that's sort of like the story of dirt candy is getting lost and the food that we do and how hard we work and all of that. And so we're, the, the truth is my focus right now is really on the restaurant and pushing that, uh, more than, you know, my views on lots of things. Was there a moment when you made the decision to push the restaurant to the front? Um, well, we took a step back from doing a lot of writing. Uh, there's a couple of things I'm still involved in. Uh, but about, I'd say, um, maybe six months ago or so, um, we, I, I, we sort of had a lot of chefs coming in and industry people, and they were like, oh, you know, I just know you from your writing. I had no idea about this restaurant. You like know, they didn't know it existed. They knew it existed, but to them it was just a vegetarian restaurant. And they're like, oh, you know, I want to come because I really admire your writing and your views on the industry. And I wanted to support you. And they're like, I had no idea my meal was going to be this good. I thought it was going to be this sort of like little, um, you know, dirty hole in the wall restaurant in the Lower East Side where you're just serving, you know, vegetables. And they're like, it's so much more exciting than that. And I can't believe I didn't know this. And it sort of clicked with me that, oh, something we've done something wrong here in my PR in uh, how we presented ourselves that we sort of let uh, all the writings, all that kind of stuff sort of really uh, move ahead and the restaurant sort of fell behind. A backhanded compliment for them to show up and be like, this is great. I had no idea you were competent at your job. <laughs> Pretty much. I get that almost every single night. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, there are a bunch of chefs out there who are named chefs that you might read about or see on TV. And like, you know, you know that they're somebody and that they do something, but you don't even know the name of their restaurant right. or what their food is all about, you know. Um, like actually we were talking about this not too long ago, Curtis Stone. I didn't realize he was this accomplished chef and he has this restaurant in LA. It's a big deal. Uh, well, he came at it from an interesting perspective. Like you were, a, I mean, not that you yeah, have was, not always been a writer, but like yeah, was you were a first. cook first and then the sort of writing and you wrote a lot about like women in the kitchen and you wrote a lot about the, you know, economic trials of owning a small business and the sort of financial fucked upness of the food industry and all sorts of things that I think are like really galvanizing and are often to certain people who are not really ready to have those conversations can be really shocking or alienating. And for people who are ready to have those conversations, it's like so exciting. Yeah. And like for Curtis, I think like he was like this hunky TV star. And then there have been a lot of super good looking TV chefs who have attempted to open restaurants and then their restaurants are just like complete garbage fires. And his actually was great. Right. It's not the it's not the perfect analog. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Curtis and I look exactly alike, so it is. Right. We're also a six foot four blonde Australian. Absolutely. <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, I just I find that interesting, like, you know, the sort of role, I guess, of, as a, of a chef has sort of evolved in the media's eye, I think, over the last 10 years or something like that. That balance of being like a public figure as an individual and being a public figure as the face and ambassador of your restaurant is it? I mean, it's a weird balance. It's a weird balance, and you—it's a—I'm not sure if it's possible to find 
Um, so I think, you know, you do one and then you do the other. You go back and forth and maybe you can't do both at the same time. I mean, it's not like I'm not, I, I still talk about tipping all the time. I talk about restaurant issues, but we're really trying now to be like, look, we make food. I feel delicious like food. you were one of the chefs that started a lot of conversations that are still going right now. Do you still kind of keep up on all this stuff? Do you read and, you know? I do. I read. I still participate in them. Um, I think it's really important that we keep pushing this industry forward. Uh, I, I feel like we've taken a couple of steps back in some directions and we need to keep pushing or we're just, we're never going to uh, become the grown-up industry that we're meant to be. So you're a very strong advocate of a no-tipping model. Yes. Um, something we've been covering a lot on the New York Eater is that uh, some big restaurants, uh, some big restaurateurs have, like, tried the no-tipping thing and then dropped it a few months after. Um, with just sort of an explanation of, like, this is really great. We'd love to do it sometime, but we're not doing I know, it right it's now. so disappointing. Yeah. Um, I do think the model works. I think you have to stick with it. It's... Um, you know, I've written about this for you guys before. I know we're making you do what you don't want to do. <laughs> no, no, but the, the truth is it, it's hard. And I, I do think part of having no tipping has, um, it made the work of opening a new restaurant twice as hard as it should have been. And we do still struggle uh, with have we done the right things. And before I go on with this, I don't have any answers. I'm just trying to, you know, make my restaurant run. I think run. nobody has <laughs> answers for this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not an expert on anything. I'm only an expert on my restaurant. Uh, and it... But to sort of those people who have tried and have, you know, taken a step back, you have to keep trying. And I think part of the problem is we're not communicating it to the customers properly. Um, so we recently, we used to have an admin fee and we don't have it anymore. Now we're just all inclusive. And we were terrified about doing it. Uh, but we actually had to because it was illegal. So <laughs> um, we, we sat down with our staff and we were like, how are we going to do this? Our prices are going to go up and they're going to look absurd. I mean, they just are, you know, I'm giving you a bowl of vegetables and it's going to cost over $20 and people already think we're too expensive and they've come to the Lower East Side and they're just angry. And uh, it's like, we have to tell them when they sit down, we have to say, you know what? We know these prices look too high. We a hundred percent agree. This is why we're an all-inclusive restaurant. Please trust us. This is how we want you to order. Um, you know, get two to three dishes per person, whatever the spiel is, get our tasting menu. Uh, and you'll see at the end that you'll have paid the same. And the truth is, once we started doing that, our check averages yeah, either went up a little or stayed the exact same. Wow. It's like, take the Pepsi challenge. Yeah. Just give it a shot. Just give it a shot. Well, you're also breaking like this major taboo, which is you're talking about the prices. You're right. talking about money. And I, I suspect that some of the restaurants that have tried going gratuity included and have or no gratuity or, or all-inclusive or whatever we're calling it these days, and have pulled back, like, never... Because it's a horrifying thing to do. I mean, people, when they recite the specials, won't tell you how much it costs in most restaurants because as soon as you enter that dollar figure into someone's head, like, the whole psychology game of trying to sell them stuff gets Yeah, there up. was a, a, a Brooklyn restaurant that I really love that just switched to a no-tipping system, and we were looking at the menus, and they have... Avocado toast is $21, and we were like, hey, now, here we go, $21 <laughs> avocado toast. But I was thinking, well, what was it like before, like 16 and then you tip? I mean, is it, you know, like, yeah, it, there's like just a 30% psych tip on a, uh, yeah. But it's a psychological thing that it you, is. you know. And one of the problems, this is why we were fighting it, so I've, I've been, although I'm not talking about it a lot, the tipping anymore, um, I am still participating in a lot of studies, and I have think tanks that are, you know, using all our data for, uh, 
their uh, studies. Think that tanks. is so cool. I know, right? Um, like what kind of like think tanks at universities? Wait, I want to know everything about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yes, those kinds of think tanks. Because um, this is a system that the, you know, people actually think could work elsewhere. And how do we implement it sort of across the board without harming other restaurants? One of the things that they've sort of discovered is when you pay your bill, you don't remember, you only remember the first number you see. You don't remember how much tip you paid. And so that's where it's become this really expensive thing. So if I give you a bill and it's like $100 and you tip $20, you remember that restaurant experience as $100. Oh, wow. You don't remember the 20 that you tipped on top of it. Oh, geez. That's crazy. And crazy, also right? feels extremely accurate to the way I'm not thinking yeah. about it. Right? Right. And I was like, oh, yeah. And they're like, yeah. So that's why when people are seeing your admin fee, they're thinking you're really expensive because that's the number they're seeing that that last number. They don't have to pay anything else. And that's why we started this. OK, we really have to like, like you got to like to prime people. them for yeah. it. Like, it's going to be expensive, but you're going to walk away. And then what we've seen sort of in reviews about us since we started this, they're like, we loved it. It's great. It's a little bit on the pricier side. And I would totally go back. I'm like, OK, fair enough. That works. Right? I mean, they, they're calling it like it is. It is a little on the pricier side. I agree. You so know? people don't remember the tip. <laughs> I wonder so if stuck on this. I'm totally no, well, Also, I mean, have you guys ever had the experience where, you know, you tip with a credit card and then you just see it go through in your credit card. You're like, oh, 150. And then like, you know, a few days, like a week later, you get that credit card charge, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. you're like, what? What is yeah, what? Yeah, exactly. Yep. No, totally. That's bonkers. It's cool, right? So, like, this is a whole new world that people are studying because I think ultimately most people don't like the tipping system. So we can all say, oh, it's going to work. It's not going to work. What are we going to do? Um, I, I can't imagine that it's not going to be the future. Some part of it will not be the future. I don't know how actually people, like, in, when minimum wage goes up, uh, how people are uh, still going to have tipping. I, I don't know how people can afford to pay their staff. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, our, our New York restaurant critic, Ryan Sutton, wrote a really extensive analysis of this back in October when Danny Meyer announced yeah. that all the Union Square hospitality restaurants were going to be going tip free over the course of a several year rollout. And um, and he, he tried really, really hard to make the I mean, I, th I thought he did a spectacular job in this piece of like making the case that it's not just a sort of like ethical and professionalism move, even though I think there's a, a big case that tipping is bad for a lot of reasons. It's this preventative measure right. against minimum wage going up. And from my sense of like a lot of the restaurateurs and chefs that we heard from and a lot of the really vocal diners sort of missed that half of the argument. They were like, no, tipping is really important for like, like servers were really angry. <laughs> yeah. We heard from so yeah. many furious servers who were like, you don't understand how hard we work and like da da da. And it's like, well, dude, like when minimum wage goes up, like either restaurants are going to cut staff significantly and you're going to have no income or they're going to start having to fold this into prices and get it in through like legit channels. Well, from a customer perspective, the hardest thing to explain to them is they're like, well, just, you know, when particularly when we had the admin fee, but even before the hand, they're just like, you know, just pay your staff better. And you're like, well, how? How? It, 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 that doesn't work. Where does we, it come the, from? The, the margins are slim, guys. So that the, we have to now charge you more money. And then you're going to be angry because it's too expensive. So you have that. And then from the servers, I sat on a panel with the server a couple of months ago. And he was like, oh, you know, I totally don't believe in no tipping. And I work for my 
uh, tips and it's so important to me. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? You have nights where you've only been paid like $50. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, right. So in a no tipping establishment, you never have those nights. You get your guarantee. Work in a better restaurant. We pay our staff $25 an hour or our servers $25 an hour. There are some restaurants that are paying $30 an hour. Find a higher paying job. I'm like, but I'm guaranteeing you that once these prices go up, you will not be making the money you think you're making anymore because people aren't going to tip 20% anymore. That's very real. Yeah. I, you know, okay. So I'm a diner who actually likes tipping because I like the, to feel the sort of magnanimous. I'm a big <laughs> shot. Here we go. Look at how generous I am. But the other system is feels pretty great too. But then still be a tipper. Great. Saying, you know what, at the end of the night, I loved my service, making it actually what it should be, which is mm-hmm. a tip. Yeah. You, you did I, you know, Joe, you were the best server I've had in a really long time. Here's $20. Thank you so much. Then but that requires that. personal interaction. And that's like the yes. weird fucked up psychology <laughs> of all of this is that like people like diners sort of mistakenly believe that like a tip is a way for them to exercise control over their server, which I think like infinite studies have proven is right. completely not the case. And then, um, but they want to exercise that control without ever actually interacting with the person or with their manager. Right. It's like this weird passive aggressive way of communicating through just like a series of numerals on a piece of paper, like exactly how I <laughs> random person you will never see again, consider your value as a human being. Right. And so if you're like, oh no, like I want to go up to Joe and say you were an amazing server, like that requires me to put myself in a position of like talking to you. As yeah, a that doesn't happen anymore. People don't want to do that. No, they want to have when, no engagement. When people are like, oh, you know how my service was off. What if my service is awful? What am I supposed to do? I'm like, well, you don't punish the person by taking away their living. You know, <laughs> right? Like that's a. I'm always like, you know, it's like if you go into a supermarket and the cashier is surly, and they're always surly, um, and you're like. I didn't like how you like rang up my bananas. I'm going to take some of these bananas for free. And then I'm going to go complain to the manager. Dock your pay. Dock your pay. (laughs) Like you would never do that. So why is that okay in the restaurant industry? You don't like your service. That's totally fair. Sometimes servers suck. Um, Complain, say something, see something, say something. (laughs) No, it's totally, it is, it is so weird. And I think like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I'm 100% philosophically in the camp of tipping is terrible. We should professionalize the flow of money through the restaurant industry so that everything can like be better by having people actually pay the amounts that they ought to be, that they are paying when they tip, but having all the money, like blah, blah, blah. But I'm also kind of in the, I, and I'm lucky to be able to be in a position where I am like a pretty generous tipper and I like doing that. And like, I think, you know, especially if you go into a restaurant and you're a food writer and you know people who work there and like they send out a couple extra dishes and you like leave some like 40 or 50 or 60 percent tip and you can feel like I'm part of the friend club. Right. But there's two problems with that. One is because I I I hear you and I agree with it. The problem is you're giving that tip. Like if we come if somebody comes to my restaurant and we comp the meal for them because, you know, they're a friend uh, or they're a chef or somebody and they leave a tip. But that's great. But you know what? Who's getting that tip still? It's only your server. So that great tip that you're leaving isn't going to the kitchen. Right. It still can only go to the server no matter what. That is the law. The law is weird. The law is weird. Um, So. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like it just does. And the other problem with this conversation that we're still having is we're so worried about the server and we've lost the the discussion about the kitchen workers. We're like, oh, the poor servers. And it doesn't mean I don't think that servers deserve the money they make. But why are we focused on how much the servers are making and what's happening with the servers? And we're still not talking about the back of house workers. 
how is this whole, oh, well, we're going to lose all our servers. Well, you know what? We're losing all our cooks. I'm still having a hard time finding cooks to work for me, and I pay really well. And we have, like, profit sharing, and we have, like, Dirt Candy University, and you can go out for dinner, and we'll pay you $50 if you do it or $50 towards your bill. And we're still not finding people because they don't live in New York anymore. Well, one thing I find really interesting about that is, like, kind of how you were talking about how people want share plates more, and they're like, I need to, I want to go to a restaurant every night of the week. I want the food, you know? Like, in that kind of a scenario, I see it as, like, the the kitchen is like even more important. Right. People are obsessed with the food. The food is the whole focus. Right. You it's know? not like a five hour like luxurious service experience where like you develop a deep intimate relationship <laughs> with your right. service captain. No, we, we we've lost the thread of it again. Where the whole point of this is to make sure the restaurant industry survives, and it's still not. I mean, this is all capitalism. So <laughs> everything is terrible. Let's all be socialist. Ah, uh, socialist New York. <laughs> the daydream. An attainable future. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be beautiful for everyone. Well, Amanda, we have come to the portion of our eater upsell interview that we like to call the lightning round. Okay. We're going to ask you some questions. You can say whatever you want. All right, let's do it. Question number one. You are at the airport and you have an hour to kill and you have $30 in your wallet. What do you do? That's a tough one. It depends where I'm going and why I'm going there. But if I'm on vacation, let's say, um, I am buying like a glass of wine or a beer and a magazine and just spending some time at the bar. That's a solid airport. Sounds fun. The problem is the airport I go to most is this tiny part of LaGuardia because I go home to Toronto all the time and there's nothing in there. So I I can't do that. There's like an Annie's pretzels. Ah, LaGuardia. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real New York uh, airport. I kind of <laughs> like is. that about it. It's like, uh, you know, you still drive up and. Didn't Joe Biden call it like a national disgrace of an airport <laughs> or something? It was some beautiful. It's moment. like an airport from an Eddie Murphy comedy it's a or terrible something. Airport. But this is really the, um, and I hope they let me back in again. It's just this awful tiny part of it where nothing happens in it. There's like one Hudson News stand, and it's not where like the Shake Shack and the other cool no, restaurants are. No, there's nothing cool there. I don't even think the bar is actually inside the uh, security. <laughs> Speaking Oof. of bars, our next question is, if you show up at a bar that you've never, ever been to before and you know nothing about it, what is the drink that you order? Uh, probably a Guinness. Oh, but that's a challenging drink. I right? know. But if you don't, if it's, they don't, I've never been to a bar where I've been like, oh, I don't think this is right, where they haven't been like, yeah, you know, it sucks. I'll get you something else. Okay. So I feel like they're pretty honest. They know whether or not their Guinness is good or not. Do you guys serve Guinness at uh, Dirt Candy? I don't. I don't think it goes with our food. <laughs> it's a little yeah. heavy. A little heavy. <laughs> if you were not a chef and writer, published author, what would you be doing? What was your dream job if it couldn't be those things? I don't know. It's always what I've wanted to be. Um, um, uh, it's, 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 it's a stumpy. It's the only thing I've ever known how to do or wanted to do. So I'd probably just be dead. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of death, um, if there, if you could bring back into existence any now closed restaurant, what would you bring back to life? The, when I was little, um, <laughs> uh, I lived in Ottawa and it, I'm pretty sure this was like the height of sophistication to me, but there was a restaurant called the Dill Pickle and it had a really good salad dressing. And that's what I would bring back. Like, what was I the salad dressing? I, you know, I think it had some dill in it, creamy. Like it was like a dill, sour, cream, ranchy thing. Awesome. It was really, really good. I love that answer. <laughs> okay, so. That, sorry, and? 
I'm going to mm-hmm. also the uh, Royal Canadian Pancake House. Which you wrote a lovely piece for Eater about. And um, it sounded like I couldn't imagine that actually in the fabric of New York City. Uh, it was awesome. I mean, it was a different time. 80s, 90s, giant pancakes, tiny pancakes, Canadian crackers. Would you ever want to do like, you know, your own version of something like that? We do. We have the Canadian cracker at brunch. Right. So but we like have an our, own dedic- Would you ever like want to open your... Nasty bonbons. Nasty yeah. bonbons. <laughs> nasty bonbons, the pancake restaurant. You know, unfortunately, I'm not sure if giant pancake restaurants work anymore. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, it mm-hmm. seemed it was um, in general, the center of the pancake was always kind of raw. So I'm, I don't know if you can do it well. Okay. So next question, you're on a road trip, you're by yourself, you're gunning down the highway and you're singing something out loud. What is it? What are you listening to? And what are you singing along to? Uh, oh, well, first of all, I don't drive. So this is on, these <laughs> well, questions you know, are really tough for me. You're being <laughs> okay, shuttled along you, a highway by a just, driverless you car. You just learned how to drive. <laughs> it's the future. And no, we don't need drivers anymore. Wait, wait, let's, let's just reroute this. What's your karaoke jam? Oh, uh, oh, I touch myself. Oh, mine too. That's my favorite it's to do. It's so good. It's so we good. We should do that sometime. Let's do it. A duet. It makes people uh, kind of uncomfortable. Totally. Because it's about masturbating. Yeah, I know. Especially Wait, when you do the moves on. with it. What? So I don't know if you listen to the name of the song, but mm-hmm. it's called... <laughs> It's called I Touch My... I thought it was oh. more metaphorical, like no. touch on the inside. No. No, it's really, it's not. And it's good. You get some moves going yep. with it. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm really happy to hear that. That's, that's very strong. Cool. Well, well, Amanda, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks, thanks for, for coming by me. the studio. It was lots of fun. Yeah. People can find Dirt Candy on the Lower East Side of New York or at DirtCandyNYC.com. <laughs> and your Twitter handle is DirtCandyNYC? No, my Twitter is DirtCandy. Don't you paying attention? To my Instagram is DirtCandyNYC. Yeah, that's a hard life. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming by, Amanda. Thank you. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morabito and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being who you are. <laughs>